Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. Welcome. Hello to you to the History of Being Black podcast. I am your host, Jay Hall, and I have a special guest today because, you know, we always take the levels of blackness a little bit up. Mr. Kelvin Waits. Hello to you. Good sir. How are you? Hey, how you doing? I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. It's good. It's good. It's good. You know, I have to tell you, when I first saw your title, I wanted to introduce you first and then say this title with you because this is a mouthful because we need to we need to go into this because I think this is one of those titles that people hear and they kind of just nod their head, you know, but I think there needs to be some understanding to it. You are the current Murder Beach, South Carolina Director of Diversity, Equity and Inclusion. That is correct. Can you tell us from your definition and what you feel that title means. Okay. From my perspective, uh, you know, the title means, um, you know, the city of Myrtle Beach hired me to fill that position. They've never had it before. Uh, and just to give you a little background on, you know, how I got to this point, you know, I've, I've been in law enforcement for 24 years and actually retired as the police chief uh, for a city about an hour away from here called Georgetown, South Carolina. And uh, after retiring, um, you know, this opportunity kind of came out of nowhere. I had somebody call me up and tell me about the job and asked me if I was interested in applying. And so as I read the job description, it was almost like, you know, it was written just for me. Uh, and so to answer your question, you know, what, what I do for the city of Myrtle Beach is I, I work with the senior staff and the senior management to make sure that we are as diverse of a workforce as we can be. Uh, everybody knows that, that millions of people come to Myrtle Beach every year from all over the world to visit and enjoy the, the, the beaches and the fine dining and, and the festivities. So it's important for us to have a, a very diverse workforce and, and Myrtle Beach, to, you know, uh, they acknowledged the fact that they could do a better job of doing that. And so uh, here I am and that's part of my job. Uh, the other part is, is to make sure that we are inclusive uh, for all of our employees. We have a, a wide range of team members, um, you know, uh, based on uh, skin color, based on gender, based on age, based on sexual identity. We have, you know, we have, we have, a, we have a, a wide range of uh, teammates uh, with different backgrounds. So it's, it's important for us to be inclusive as well. And uh, in terms of being equitable, uh, my job is to make sure that we are, we, we, we make sure that every employee uh, has what they need in order to succeed, which is always, you know, a challenge and always tough. But to wrap it up for you, that's that's pretty much my job in a nutshell. That's good. Are, are you from South Carolina originally? Born and raised? I was born in Harlem, Harlem, New York, and I lived there uh, until I was 10 years old. My parents, my older brother, and, uh, you know, Harlem was tough at the time, so my parents saved up money and moved us to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, and that's why I spent the rest of my time growing up. Okay. You and I have a connection. So my family background is from South Carolina. They're from a small town. You may or may not have heard of it called Newberry, South Carolina, and the rest of them now live in Columbia. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> because we have a we we have we have more of a connection than you realize. So uh, when I moved to uh, Charleston, you know I was a sickly kid in New York. I had I suffered from asthma. You know I had a 
You know, I tell my kids that I had crooked legs and I wore leg braces like Forrest Gump, you know, before the movie even came out. And um, and so when we moved to Charleston, things kind of started to turn around for me and I realized that I was athletic. And so long story short, I ended up going to college on a football scholarship. And you would never guess what college I went to. Newberry. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's, that's my that's my background. My my grandfather and my grandparents took my mother when she was three, and they moved to Detroit, Michigan. You know, was part of that great migration you're so familiar about. So that's our connection, brother. Wow, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, get into your background. You you know you said you play football. I was reading some of your, your your bio. You know, you ain't just go to school. You 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 went like you got a science degree. Yeah, yeah, I got uh, a bachelor of science degree in organizational management. Uh, you know, I left Newberry and joined uh, the army, um, United States Army, after two years. Uh, but I finished college later. Uh, so I graduated from Charleston Southern University with a bachelor of science degree in organizational management which helped prepare me for, you know, life in law enforcement. How does a brother get into law enforcement with our history and our community? Is it something that you always say, I want to get into, like you knew at the very start, or you got older and became a little bit more like, I want to do this on the inside? That's a good question. Uh, and, and honestly, as a kid, honestly, I, I, I didn't care for the police. I didn't want to be the police. I never uh, in a million years imagined that I would I would be in law enforcement. Uh, when I went to college, when I went to Newberry, I went to Newberry uh, and my major was communications because I wanted to I wanted to, I wanted to be on radio or TV. I wanted to work for BET. I, I love sports or I wanted to work for ESPN. And uh, so I go, you know, I go to college and, and, and honestly, just being totally transparent, I didn't make the most of uh, that opportunity. You know what I'm saying? I spent more time, uh, you know, acting out and partying and, and, and playing football than I did focusing on my schoolwork. So, you know, I realized that, okay, I need to get it together. And so that's when I joined the Army and uh, I served for four years. Uh, most of my time was overseas in, in, in Germany. And uh, when I was there, my, my father got sick and I had to come back. Uh, and, it, and it seemed like it took me forever to get back. And I'm thinking the whole time I'm on the plane, I'm trying to catch a hop. I'm thinking my dad's going to die before I make it back to South Carolina. And so then I realized, OK, you know, my parents are older. I need to be closer to home. And I decided, you know, that when my term was up, I was going to get out. And uh, and I met a gentleman uh, who was a sheriff uh, in Georgetown County at the time. And we just talked. We talked about the military. He was intrigued. I copied Morse code. I worked uh, military intelligence. I copied Morse code. He was intrigued by that. I was intrigued by law enforcement. And he says to me before, uh, before I left, he said, hey, if I'm still around, if you ever decide to get out, you want a job, look me up. And so a couple of years later, I did. And, uh, and that's how I started law enforcement. Uh, I was already in the military and, and I enjoyed serving. And uh, I realized I had a calling on my life to serve. And so that's how I decided later on that I was going to get involved. Now, I can probably guess. But why was it as a young boy you did not like the police? Honestly, I, I, I really... Um, I didn't really like what I saw. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I just, you know, the only time I really saw the police was when something bad was happening. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I never really uh, saw them any other time. And I just, I just didn't, I just didn't like what I saw at the time. And so, you know, again, I had no desire uh, to be in law enforcement. So when you first entered law enforcement and you took that opportunity, was that still on your mind on your first days at work or did it go away or what? No, I can tell you, uh, and I don't mind telling you, man, I, you know, my, my entire career has been a roller coaster, really, because, you know, I come in, I come in straight out, 
two, you know, uh, six years out of college playing college football. I come in straight out of the military. I'm in the best condition of my life. And I was, a, you know, still a young man. And, and my um, my focus was lock up the bad guy. That's that. That was I had that tunnel vision. I, you know, lock up the bad guy. And so, you know, as you you, you arrest the bad guy, you figure out that uh, there, there are some uh, cycles that need to be broken because you end up arresting dad and then you end up arresting the son and then you end up arresting the uncle. You know what I'm saying? And you realize that, okay, you kind of back up and it's almost like playing, it's almost like playing football, playing quarterback. You hear how uh, people talk about uh, Tom Brady and they say, well, you know, he's at that point where the game slows down for you. And so it took me a few years, but the game slowed down for me and helped me realize that, okay, this game is bigger than just locking up the bad guy. There are some cycles that we need to break uh, and some old wounds that we need to heal in, in, in terms of bringing the community. Uh, what was one of the first cycles that stood out to you that you felt like you had to act on? It was a, uh, I remember, I won't call it a gentleman by name, but I'll just talk about the scenario. There was a, there was a, a gentleman that I arrested and about two years later, uh, his son uh, was out there uh, and he was going hard in the wrong direction going hard in the, in the wrong direction. He was still a juvenile. He wasn't quite an adult yet. So um, I was able to help him through the court system and get him, you know, I said, man, what, what is it you want to do? Was it, he? I, you know, because one summer he was just, he was out of control. He was breaking in the cars. He was breaking in the houses. And I said, what do you want to do? And he says, I want to go back to school. I want to get in school. And so, uh, you know, I worked with the school district. I knew some people, you know, and, and I said, look, this young man really wants to be in school. I know uh, he was in before. He, he had some challenges. He didn't make the best of his opportunity, uh, which I had, you know, I could relate to that in the past. I said, he just needs another chance. And so we got him in the school and um, and he flourished. He did what he was supposed to do. I got to be sure that that connected with you with your military background and all, right? It really did. It really did. Like I said, and he had a desire. I mean, he said, you know, out of everything he could have said, you know, I said, what is it that you want to do? He said, I want to go back to school. And so, like again, we got him in school. I can remember riding by the school one day and seeing him outside kind of on the corner with a group of guys smoking a cigarette. And I turned around and I went back. I said, what you, why are you out here? And, you know, he was like, my bad, Mr. Kevin. You know, anyway, he, he you know, he got himself together. And, and again, he went back and took care of his business, graduated and went on to the next level. And I, and I was, you know, I, I was happy for him. I was happy as a law enforcement officer. Uh, a lot of times it can seem like a dead end, you know, so, so what happened with him actually gave me hope. How important would you say that hope is needed in the profession that you do? Oh, man. You know, hope is uh, hope is fragile. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it, it could be, you know, hope. If you lose hope, you could be inches away from a breakthrough, right? You could be inches away and just lose hope and give up. Or hope can cause you to imagine or, or, or go or do more than, than you ever believed you had the capacity to do. Uh, my my perspective in law enforcement, you got you got to have hope. You got to have hope. Um, you know because and I know there's a, a lot of negative things. You know based on several things that have happened over the past few years, right? That that go along uh, with being law enforcement. But from my perspective, law enforcement officers are superheroes to a certain degree because you know you you got to have that hope. You got to see past um, you know the surface. You know it's not just about what somebody did, but why. Why did they do it? You know what I'm saying? What, what, you know, what is, what has put this person in survival mode to make them think that they got to go stand out on the corner all day, uh, and hustle? What made this mom go to Walmart and, and steal Similac or steal Pampers? 
You see what I'm saying? I mean, so we, we, we gotta, we got, you know, law enforcement officers, we gotta have hope because our job is really to fight for people who can't fight for themselves. You know what I'm saying? And if you don't have hope and you don't think you're not optimistic and positive and believe that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, I don't care how long that tunnel is, it's tough. And you get cynical. You know what I'm saying? You get cynical about life. You get cynical about the job. When I hear that, I think about the conversation about how a lot of the officers that have been, you know, in our communities have not been of our communities. And you speaking of someone who is from our community, being able to see past the surface, is that a skill set which you say you have to already have have, like inherit, or that's something that has to develop? For me, and, and, and Jay, all I can do is speak for me, but for me, it had to be developed because I told you initially, my mindset was lock up the bad guy. And it took a minute, again, uh, just like a quarterback for the game, to slow down from, for me and for me to realize, okay, there's more to this thing than just locking up the bad guy. How do we stop, you know, uh, things from happening? How do we how do we be proactive and prevent young people from getting hooked on drugs or prevent young people from being pressured into going to gangs? You know what I'm saying? And if they are, how can we be there, you know what I'm saying, to help them get out? So, it, you know, for me, it had to be developed because I, I didn't get it going going right in. And, I, and I'm not ashamed to say, it, you know what I'm saying, I got it quickly enough to realize that, okay, I can do a lot of good. Yeah, I was going to get to that. And thank you for sharing that because I think that's the issue. We don't hear in the community a lot of humanity from law enforcement. You know, the only time we get a chance to a lot of times hear them is on TV and they speak about you know, someone who's passing like an object, you know, you hear the word perk all the time and all of those things. So I think your humanity into the response of those questions is, you know, speaks volumes. I also see that you graduated from the FBI National Academy. <laughs> little, little, little kid from Harlem, I'm crooked leg. You know what I'm saying? Never imagined that, uh, that, that uh, <laughs> you know, that, that 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 could happen, but uh, but yeah, uh, around 2012, um, I was actually a lot of people don't realize, but you know, I was on the list for like 10 years to go, and in 2012, I got a phone call, hey, you ready to come? And uh, and at the time, I was a uh, captain in my police department, and my police chief supported. You know, he said, hey, go, and it was um, it was 10 weeks long. Um, you know, I stayed right there at the FBI Academy, away from my family. I had a roommate. Um, the coolest thing for me was I had a roommate because people come from all over the world. It's not just people here in the States. So it's, it's law enforcement executives from all over the world. And my roommate happened to be from Uganda. He was uh, in charge of the terrorism program. And um, he was he was an awesome guy. And uh, it was an awesome uh, training experience and awesome networking experience. And it helped me realize that that law enforcement executives from all over the world, we, we face the same problems, whether it's Saudi Arabia, whether it's Korea, we all face the same problems. And one of those problems is one of the major problems is, 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 is having and building the trust and maintaining the trust of the community. I'm looking at your resume and you just it's it's am, am I wrong to assume you like to go against the grain? Like if it's the opposite, this is where you going. Am I wrong to assume that? No, no, but you know what? Hey, it's funny, uh, and I'm laughing because you sound like uh, my daughter. I have a daughter, um, and I'm so proud of her. I'm proud of both of my kids. I have a daughter and a son, but my daughter is a, she's a prosecutor. She went to law school, and she's now a prosecutor. So around the time that I retired last year from law enforcement, she was graduating from, you know, from law school, which, and so it was almost like, uh, 
you know, I was passing the torch to a certain degree, a uh, weird situation. So she asked me one day, she said, Daddy, um, you know, I, I watch you over the years and, and, and she said, you go hard. You go, if you, you, you're always positive, sometimes I get mad at you because I'm trying to be down or negative and you won't let it happen. She said, you're always positive. She said, but the thing I've noticed about you is your drive. And I just don't understand it. She said, you just go hard and, uh, and you've always gone hard. And, and she said, so how and why? You know, how, how'd you end up that way? And I said, honestly, because I never thought about it until she, you know, she laid it out for me that way. I said, honestly, after I thought about it, I said, I've always been afraid to fail. I've just always been afraid to fail. Um, and I think um, it came from, you know, being a kid um, growing up in Harlem, knowing that, you know, at one point in my life, I couldn't do. I did have hope at one time. You asked me about hope earlier. But at one time, those first 10 years of my life, I did not have hope. Um, I had asthma. We lived on the 14th floor in the projects. You know what I'm saying? Um, I had crooked legs. So the highlight of my day, most days, was whether or not the elevator was working in the building. And most days, the elevator didn't work. And so me and my older brother would have to walk up the steps, 14 flights of steps. And either I would uh, have an asthma attack right there in the stairwell or, you know, my legs would cramp up from the pain. And, and, uh, and my brother would say, hey, don't stop. Keep moving. I don't care how slow you go. Just keep moving. I can hear him saying it right now, but I don't share that experience with young people or, or people in general to get sympathy. You know what I'm saying? I, I share it because it taught me that there's no elevator that's going to come along and take any of us to any level of success. All of us, I don't care what you're doing. I don't care where you're trying to go. You got to walk up the steps. You have to walk up the steps. You can't skip steps. You can't hop skips. You have to walk up every step that you're destined to walk up. And so that that experience um, taught me a great, great lesson in life. And again, I've always just been afraid to fail. I hear that. I, I really do. And I admire that. And I think the example you're using about the steps. And one thing about you Harlem brothers, y'all can have lived there only one year. It's, it's Harlem to the day you die. So shout out to you on that. <laughs> I, I think about the example you use for steps and law enforcement itself as an officer already has a strained relationship with us in the black community. And then you kind of double down, you go into the FBI. And when you think about the FBI's history with Controversy, you know, with Jagger Hoover and our black leaders, Malcolm X, Harlem, right? And, and MLK and all of that. How do you exist in that with knowing that history in that for yourself? Well, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a term that me and uh, some of my colleagues, you know, would use over the years um, that, you know, and as we would describe ourselves as African-American law enforcement officers. And so we would we would say that, you know, we're we're black and we're blue. Right. You ever heard that term? Yes, I have. OK, so so and so and what it what it means to me is that in, in first and foremost, I'm African-American. I'm black first. I am black first. I came up in the culture. I am the culture. I'm part of the culture. Uh, but then I'm blue. And, and, and being blue is, is that I am here to serve. You know what I'm saying? During my law enforcement career, after I got it, I realized that it was really all about service. And I never forget um, uh, one of my uh, supervisors asked me one day, he said, well, Chief, how do you come to work every day? You're in a positive mood. You're smiling. You seem happy and you make serious decisions that impact people's lives every day. And um, he said, how do you do that? And I said, well, first of all, I know that I may sit in this chair. Uh, my name may be on that door, but ultimately I'm not really in charge. You know what I'm saying? I'm, 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 I'm led by my faith. Uh, I believe in God. He's always he's always guided me. When I became police chief and I would have meetings, weekly meetings or any kind of meeting, the very first thing we would do is pray. 
You know what I'm saying? And and not to to push religion. I'm not overly religious, but I just believe that that, that dude upstairs controls everything. You know what I'm saying? And I can't give him dominion over this and not give him dominion over that. He controls everything. And, and, and I put him first. I put him first every single time. And if you do that, everything else falls in place. And I told him, and, and, and in addition to that, do the right thing. I'm going to do the right thing. Even if it hurts, even if people get mad at me, even if I lose friends, if you do the right thing, You'll have a peace of mind. You can sleep at night and you can come to work and hold your head up high and smile. I hear you. So you do the FBI. They kept you waiting for 10 years. I had no idea that list. That's a long list. They keep you waiting for 10 years. You do the FBI Academy thing. And then what happens after that? Okay. So after after I got back from the FBI Academy, and, and, and just so you know, for, for a law enforcement executive, there was no other higher school you can go to. So that's like it. So after you do that, I mean, you're really set up to to be a law enforcement executive, a chief, command staff level anywhere in the country. And so, you know, you 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 become more, uh, you know, appealing. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's you, you, you've reached a certain level. And so uh, shortly after that, I, I got offered a job as a deputy chief of police at the Horry County Police Department, which is which covers the Myrtle Beach area. And uh, and so I work for Horry County. Four and a half years um, as the deputy chief, and then was the interim police chief. And then uh, I got a, a phone call from my home, which is Georgetown, South Carolina, saying, "Hey, our police chief Byron, are you interested?" And so I, I took that opportunity. Yeah, and I see that not only did you take that opportunity, but you were the first black police chief in Georgetown, South Carolina, right? Yes, that is correct. First African American police chief, and uh, and it was crazy for me. Ironic. Um, it's it's really hard. To describe Jay, because you know my 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 hope, my prayer was that that I I wouldn't just be known as the first African American police chief. You know what I'm saying? I I really wanted it to be, hey, this dude was one of the best police chiefs we had, not just the black one. You know what I'm saying? But one of the best police chiefs we had, and so I you know I really worked hard to make sure that I was everybody's chief. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I did what was right in every case, and and I worked with and for everybody. Um, I knew what it meant to the young people in the community that looked like me. You know what I'm saying? That that was big. That was important. I, I know what, I knew what it looked like to uh, people, you know, wanting to get in law enforcement as a recruit too. You know what I'm saying? If you want to really change the game up and you want to be positive and you want to change, let me give you a job. You know what I'm saying? I, I go to the high school and I say, I need you. Uh, well, Chief, I'm only 18. I'll, I'll wait on you. I'll wait on you. I'll give you three years. Come see me. Keep your nose clean. And I actually had a gentleman that, that, that every year he would come to events at the police department. He said, I'm going to work for you. I'm going to work for you. And I'm like, how, how old are you now? He said, I'm graduating. And anyway, he graduated. He volunteered as a firefighter for like two years. And then when he was 21, I was able to hire him. But, but it, it was important. But there was a, uh, Jay, I wouldn't call it a burden, but there was a heaviness, you know what I'm saying, to go, to go along with that because there was so much riding on it. You know what I'm saying? There's so much, so many people depending on you. I think about when it comes to being the first black of everything, and, and, and I'm not going to lie, sometimes I'm torn because on one end, when I hear first black something, you know, my instinct is to celebrate it. Then on another end, I'm, I kind of be like, man, we're still doing first. You know what I mean? Like, I, I get a little bit upset, and I kind of understand what you're saying about not just wanting to be known as that because they have a way of minimizing you and your accomplishments when it comes to that, especially when you start to do good. And I think about, you know, I was watching this Obama documentary. And I remember during that time how so many of us in our community wanted him to solve so many things like overnight. 
so many things like from 400 years of this like overnight like we we wanted that answer like yo what are you doing obama we everything that was black we wanted him to be like right there in the front line on a much smaller scale did you feel that way being the first black chief in georgetown south carolina I did, and uh, and man, you, I'm gonna tell you, Jay, you good at what you do. You ask some awesome questions because everything, every point you bring up, every question you ask, it makes me, it jogs my memory, it makes me think of a story. So I'm the police chief at Georgetown for two weeks, and a um, uh, a gentleman comes to visit me, and, and and I always prided myself on on having an open door policy. If I was there and somebody from the community came to see me. They pay my salary. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I need to make either make time or find a time where they can come back and we can meet. So but this gentleman comes in, man, he is clean. He's got on a three piece suit. He looks just like my dad passed away 2009. But he reminded me of my dad. Same stature, same mannerism. And he comes in, he sits down and he starts talking. He says, son, um, we're so proud of you. You know, we're so glad you're here. And, uh, you know, I'm real humble. I said, hey, sir, I appreciate that. Thank you so much, you know, for coming in. He said, well, I'm here to tell you that, number one. He said, but number two, I want to have, it was it was a time where it was shortly after they had the uh, sniper police shootings in Dallas. You know, things were kind of tense. And he said, man, I want to I want to have a rally. I want to bring the community together. And, um, you know, I want to bring people together. And I said, okay. I said, listen, I'm, I'm with that. You know what I'm saying? If that's what you want to do, you tell me where I need to be and what I need to do. And he said, I want you to come and speak. I said, no issue. I'll be there. Tell me today. And so everything was cool. And then he finishes up by saying, I don't want any white police officers to be there. And I kind of paused and I said, sir, do, do you do you understand what, what you're saying to me? And he said, yeah. What's the problem? I said, well, the problem is on one hand, you're telling me you want to bring people together, right? You want to bring the community together. You want to bring everybody together. You want to bring people together. But then on the other hand, you're telling me, you don't want any white police officers to come to the event. And I said, if, if, if that's your position, then then I can't support your event and I won't be participating. You know, so, you know, it was a, it, you know, it was a prime example of, of how sometimes we have to draw a line in the sand in terms of doing the right thing and kind of setting the tone. Because I, I, I again, uh, what I said 10 minutes ago is, you know, my job was to be everybody's chief. And, and he was talking about unity, but he really wasn't talking about unity. You know what I mean? So that's just an example of uh, some of the issues um, that, that I had to, had to deal with. How did you walk away feeling with that? Was, was there a feeling of being torn? Did you understand where he was coming from? You know, how, how did you walk away with that? Jay, honestly, I, I wasn't torn because, you know, from from a posture and a position of service, you don't really if you if you're truly a servant, if you are truly a servant, you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing who you serve. You know what I'm saying? You said the word earlier, not me, but but I'm big on this word. You said the word humanity and it starts and it ends with humanity. You know, I believe my personal opinion is is today. Things are so, I'll just say, jacked up. Things are so jacked up because people don't communicate. We don't lead with humanity. You know what I'm saying? We lead with politics or we lead with uh, skin color. Or we lead with culture or we lead with religion. We don't We don't lead with humanity. And, and, and I just think that if we, if we do and we communicate and we talk, things will be so much better for everybody. But I left that conversation. I was good. You know what I'm saying? He was kind of backpedaling and he was like, well, no, no, no. I understand what you're saying. But I couldn't... Uh, I, I, you know, I could not be sucked up in that vacuum. I get that. I, I, I do. I, I get where you're coming from in that. I get his side, too, and where he was coming from, and I get the position that you was in. So I, I can only imagine. But 
it sounds like from what you're telling me, that's a decision that you have to make way before you even encounter individuals like him. Like I said, I mean, you know, if you're truly in a posture to serve, you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing who you serve. You you just serve, you know. Yeah, I do. Now, there's always, you know, living in America, being black in America, and we spoke about that. There's always battles that we face that we, we, we hear about all the time. What within the system are some of the opposition battles that you have to face being a black man in that while you was there? Like, I, and, I, and I'll give you an example. Like one time I was in radio way out in 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 a state. I'm not even going to name the state where I was at. And I remember they was like, hey, we're going to have this guy on the radio and we're going to call him China Man. And it was a white guy. And I was the only black person. I was the only minority in the room, you know, and I had to kind of raise my hand and be like, um, yo, I don't I don't know about this. Right. And that was a battle at the fight that nobody will ever hear about. Is there a battle that you have to fight that we are not as citizens where, you know, know about that you can share? One, one in particular um, that I really felt was, you know, we all have an aha moment, right? One that I really felt was an aha moment for me was uh, uh, after uh, Mr. George Floyd was murdered. Of course, there was, you know, uh, protests all around the country. Um, and, you know, we were expecting a protest. We had a few in, our, in my community when I was police chief, and we were expecting a, a pretty large uh, protest. And I remember, uh, you know, we were getting prepared because I support peaceful protests and, I, and I, I really thought it was a good thing. But unfortunately, some places around the country, it went from being peaceful, you know, to being not so peaceful. And so, you know, as a law enforcement executive and a police chief, you got to prepare for the worst. And so, you know, we were talking, we're preparing. And I remember that day uh, that we were about to go out and work. Uh, I had one of my officers, uh, he was a white police officer, and we were in a meeting and he said, Chief, I got a question. I said, OK. And he said, I don't understand why. People have to march here. George Floyd wasn't murdered in, in, in Georgetown, South Carolina. He was murdered in Minneapolis. Why, why are people marching here? And so, Jay, I, I really believe that I was in law enforcement in that place at that time to be able to answer that question. You know what I'm saying? It was like, uh, you know, that was my aha moment. I was I was the person destined to be in that space to answer that question. And so I was glad he he didn't sit on it and he asked it, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and just to give me an opportunity to answer it for, for, for anybody else who may have been thinking the same thing but didn't have enough courage to say it. And so, you know, I just calmly told him, I said, look, George Floyd was murdered in everybody's living room across the globe due to social media, due to news, whatever, every body saw it. Uh, and we were all traumatized. You know, we were all hurt. And I said, people have to know, you know, they have they, they come up with ways to try to deal with that pain, to try to start the healing process and peaceful protests for people to come out and demonstrate and say how they feel was a part of that. Uh, I explained to him that, you know, even though we're all traumatized for me, it may be a little different because when I saw George Floyd, I saw my dad, I saw my brother, I saw my uncles, I saw my own son down on the ground. Uh, and so, again, people have to, to figure out a way how uh, to to express themselves and, and, and let the system know that, hey, we're tired. We want something different. We want change in a peaceful manner. And so we, you know, I told them, I said, we're going to go out here and support these people today and we're going to keep everybody safe. And so, but that was my aha moment. And, and I think uh, was was, I think it was meant for me to be in that space at that time. And that, that was a challenge to be able to step up to the plate and relay that information to that officer. Yeah. Cause when you say that you're right, he, he died in everyone's living room. He definitely died in my living room. 
He died in my car when I was looking at my phone, looking at that. You know, he, he died several times until I had to stop myself every time I watched that video, every spot that I was and everyone that I know, you know, that that shared it. And that's that's a that's a real statement. You you know, you, you mentioned, you know, you being a father working in law enforcement. Do you have you had to have that that black parent conversation with your children about how when they go out, the conversation everyone has, you know, we assume that most black parents have had to have with their kids? Absolutely. You know, uh, and, and, you know, I've, I, and I've talked about it openly uh, and, and honestly, um, over the years, you know, I've, I've, I don't know if it's been a shame. Uh, I felt ashamed to have to say it, but, but, you know, I'm a police chief. I'm, I'm in law enforcement, but yet I got to sit my son down and, and, and basically tell him, hey, when you get stopped, this is what you got to do uh, to keep yourself out of harm's way. And to make it back home. So yes, I mean, I've, I've had that conversation with my son. I, I guess I can get that feeling from what you're saying. It's it, it working in law enforcement, but yet having to have that conversation with your son. Does it feel like some sort of contradiction there? Is it you know something or whatever? What's the emotion that you can describe with that? The, the emotion is 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 really realizing and recognizing Jay that you know when police officers are recruited, they're recruited from the same population is everybody else, right? And so within the population, there's good people, there's not so good, you know what I'm saying? And, and there's bad people. And so sometimes somebody who may not should have been allowed to be in law enforcement, it's in, you know what I'm saying? And everybody's uh, heart isn't always in the right place. And so, you know, we, 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 we can't discount that or act like that's not the case. You know, uh, law enforcement officers are hired from the same and recruited from the same population as everybody else. That's real. That's real. Let me get you like a few more before, you know, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but let's let's get into this director diversity, equity, and inclusion position. How, how did you become the individual, the guy for this role? Well, honestly, um, I really believe that, that, you know, my law enforcement career, my background in the military, even my childhood and, and, and living in, uh, in, in, in different regions, you know what I'm saying, at a, at a state really prepared me. Um, I remember the culture shock that I had to go through when I uh, moved from New York to Charleston, right? And so when I went to New, uh, school in New York, I went to Catholic school, me and my older brother with everybody. Everybody. It was like a big melting pot. Any nationality you can think about, everybody was there. We all got along. There were no issues. We always found a way to work together and figure things out. When I moved to Charleston, I was different. You know what I'm saying? I was like an outsider. And I never forget the very first form of discrimination that I really had to deal with was the fact that I had an accent, you know, and I was different in that the African-American kids in my neighborhood didn't even want to play with me because I was different because I, you know, had that that little northern thing going on. And so that uh, that was a pretty, pretty uh, hurtful and humbling experience. You know what I'm saying? But I believe my whole life prepared me to be able to, to come in and do this job for the city of Myrtle Beach because I understand what it feels like to be different. I understand what it feels like uh, not to be accepted. And so I can relate to people who are different, you know what I'm saying, and help them uh, feel included and make sure that we work as a staff to make sure that they, they're, you know, we're, we're equitable and fair to everybody and making sure that we, we try to give our employees as well as the community what they need to be successful. What was one of the first things that you said you're going to dive into when you got into this role? The first thing, um, really honestly, that that, that uh, we wanted to really see as a team was, you know, you can walk around uh, and, and look at the staff and take a guess on, on how diverse we are. Or uh, one of the first things I wanted to do was really talk to 
the department heads across the city to find out what the culture was, what they thought the culture was from their perspective, get to know them. Uh, and then after that, really dig in and figure out based on our boy management systems and, and demographics and the U.S. census data, where we stood in terms of being uh, how, di- how diverse of a workplace that we workforce that we actually have. I'm hearing that, you know, you are also part of the team and you are going to be the host of a podcast on Mean Online Media, um, Safe Conversations. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, I'm excited about it, um, you know, I, I, because I believe it's, it's you know, that, that people that are different, um, no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter how much money you have in your pocket or whether you're gay or you're straight, people need to have uh, a platform where they can come and just sit around the campfire and talk because I believe that's the only way that we can get a better understanding of each other and really have breakthroughs. Like I said earlier, I think honestly that 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 our country, not even our country, I think the globe, if we all figured out a way to do a better job of communicating, we would we would be better off. And so I, I you know, I'm I'm, I'm stepping out. Uh, I believe in uh, the concept of safe conversations, and and, and I'm looking forward. Uh, hopefully, uh, you uh, you take some time and, and and maybe come through and pull up, and we can sit down and talk about some of the challenges you faced along your way. Oh, I, I, I definitely want to pull up. I want, I want to knock at the door. I just want to let you know that right now. I'm going to knock at the door, and I definitely want to be there. So thank you for the invite, you know, because I, I probably was going to knock at your door anyway. But now that you invited me, now I know I can knock at your door. So thank you very much for the invite. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let, me, let me put a little bit of it to the test, you know, with safe conversations. The father and son who murdered Ahmaud Arbery was sentenced to life in prison, and the neighbor got 35 years. Now, somebody who's worked in law enforcement all these years, what's your perspective on that? Well, my perspective is is that everybody needs to be held accountable. You know what I'm saying? I mean, whether it's the commu- someone in the community, whether it's law enforcement, everybody needs to be held accountable. And 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 I think it it you know when across the country when people see or, or they feel like they're being slighted or or they're not being treated as equal, it, you know, I simulate it to a pot of boiling water. Right. And, and, and if you, you know, Jay, answer this for me. If if you got a pot of, of, of boiling water on the stove and when it gets to boiling real good and you, you never, ever address it, you don't turn the heat down. You don't take it off. You just leave it there. Eventually, what's going to happen? It is going to explode and it's going to be a sad day. That's right. And so when 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 things happen and it's not addressed and people are not held accountable. It's almost like somebody turns up the heat on that pot. And so to answer your question, I, I, my, my perspective is everybody needs to be held accountable. Okay. I see you. I see you. All right. Let me, let me give you a couple. Let me give you just a couple quotes that I read that you like. And you tell me what you think about these before you go. So, quote, we are all actors in God production. What does that say to you? That's your motto from my understanding. It says to me, it is. And, and I'll tell you what it came from. It came from my dad. It came from my dad. Uh, my dad had a sixth grade education. He was a mechanic. And uh, and I never, uh, one day in my life, saw this guy sweat. I never saw him sweat. And he said to me as a kid, and, 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 I, and his mannerisms and everything, I, I just picked up. And, and it's been a gift to me throughout my career, whether it's been the Army, whether it's been law enforcement, or even now. He said it to me. He said, Kevin, always remember that uh, that we are all actors in God's production. And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, the script is already written. And if the script is written, each and every one of us has a role to play, right? And if the script's already written, you shouldn't be 
you know, like the sky's falling, you shouldn't be upset, you shouldn't panic because everything happens for a reason and it's in the script for it to go a certain way. So that's that's what that means to me. How old were you the first time you saw that example? You witnessed it for yourself. I would say when we when we when we got close to moving from Harlem to moving to Charleston, because again, like I said, my parents um they 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 saved up money and we moved. And my dad, um, again, I never saw this guy upset. I never saw him yell. Um, I saw him cry one time, but he always had a, a positive demeanor. And he had every reason to be bitter about life. Every reason. He had a sixth grade education. He quit school when he was a kid because they had a house fire. He had to go to work. So he didn't get to play organized sports. He didn't get to go to prom. He didn't get to really enjoy his childhood. Every reason to be bitter about life. So the the real life example for me was seeing how he lived his life. uh, And he never flexed and he never tripped. He always kept his bearing and he he always stayed positive. So if he could do that through all of that, you know, it, it was just a great lesson for me. Okay. Yeah, there's other quote that I hear is your motto. We all should not just be good, but we should be good at something, unquote. What did I say to you? What it says is, you know, again, uh, we, you know, we shouldn't just be good. We should be good for something. Is that it's not okay to, to, to have a gift or a talent if you're not using it to help other people. You know what I'm saying? If you got a gift or a talent, you just you just got it just to look at it on your on your wall or your shelf every now and then and, and, and shot it up and put it there, then you're not doing what you're supposed to do. Uh, I really believe that we all have gifts and talents and we have them to build other people up. We have them to help other people. Um, and so it's, it's not, in my opinion, it's not good enough just to be good. You have to be good for something. You got to be lifting people up some kind of way. That is a perfect note to end on. I appreciate you, good sir. Thank you. Thank you. You've definitely given me something to really, you know, think about when I think about brothers themselves and law enforcement, because it's not often we get a chance to hear your voices and, you know, to be so candid. So, you know, first of all, I'll tip my hat off to you for that right there alone. Is there anything that you got coming up that, you know, you would like for all of us to have our eyes on that you can speak of? No, I mean, you brought it up earlier. I, I am pretty excited about the podcast um, uh, and, and being one of your teammates. Um, I'm hyped about safe conversations. I believe that it can um, that it can change the game and really bring some people to the table to talk and, and, and without being uh, judged harshly or beat up or because everybody's got a different perspective. We all come from different backgrounds. And so everybody's got a different perspective. So I'm just excited uh, to be able to bring uh, safe conversations to the forefront. And I, and I look forward to, to, to grinding out and working with everybody. Indeed. Much appreciated, good sir. Kelvin Waste, much appreciate you. This has been another episode, a great episode of The History in Black. I'm pretty sure my blackness has been elevated. I hope yours have. Mr. Waits, hope yours has. As usual, you can make sure to follow me on all social media platforms at Jayhaw Society. Make sure you check out the History of Being Black on IG. Leave a comment. Let us know how you feel about this conversation and what we can do moving forward. As usual, be blessed and successful. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you for having me. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at The History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O-Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O-Line Media. Get the Mean O-Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O-Line Media production.
Before Shopify, were you wondering, where my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 